Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. Tonight, on its 28th anniversary, I'll be talking about a movie that gave me chronic nightmares as a kid, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. What's to be scared about? It's not like it's real or anything. Well, it's not real from your point of view, and right now reality shares your point of view. What, what scares me about Kane's work is what might happen if reality shared his point of view. Whoa, 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 we're not talking about reality we're talking about fiction. It's different, you know? This is one of those movies, you know, it's it's been with me since childhood. I love it. And I'm always aware that I love it. But I, I tend to go long periods of time between viewings. And I, I always forget just how much I love it and how scary it is. We'll look at the film's story, production, and reception. Then my friend Bruce is going to join us. Before we can dive into it, I do have a couple of quick points of interest. For my Canadian listeners, the Myers House, North Carolina, as part of its on-set cinema film series, is hosting an epic event this Valentine's Day at Sydney Mines, Nova Scotia, which is where My Bloody Valentine was filmed. There will be a dinner and movie night screening the film at the Royal Canadian Legion building, which is where all of the downtown scenes of My Bloody Valentine were shot and right where the Valentine's Day banner was hanging out over the street. They'll also be doing a, a walking tour of the filming locations and a meet and greet slash autograph signing with Peter Cowper, who played Harry Warden. 100% of the proceeds of the Peter Cowper stuff is going to charity. I don't know which charity, but it's a charity, which is pretty neat. There are two versions of this event, actually, one on the 11th, which I believe is sold out, and then one on Valentine's Day. Really makes me wish I lived in Canada, even more than I already do. <laughs> We have a couple new-ish noteworthy trailers. There's the Red Band trailer for Scream 6, which, much like the Evil Dead Rise situation, I won't dig too deeply into my feelings about the new Scream 6 trailer because uh, Bruce and I just talked about it on my Instagram. So if you're interested in hearing all our thoughts on the trailer, feel free to head over there and check it out. To summarize, I don't love it. <laughs> I have uh, I have questions. I have concerns. But I'll also follow the Scream franchise into the dark. So I'll know more how I feel about the trailer once I've seen the film, I'm sure. A trailer that really stood out to me recently, though, was uh, for Consecration, directed by Christopher Smith. Before he fell into darkness, he was much loved by everyone. Fell into darkness. Consecration stars Jenna Malone as a grieving sister who travels to a convent in Scotland to investigate the mysterious death of her brother, who is also a priest. I think this one looks really interesting. Definitely feels like a bit of a crossover between demonic possession and grief horror. And I hadn't seen Jenna Malone in anything in so long. It was really nice to see her face. Um, and she seems to be doing amazing work with this character. So yeah, that's one to keep an eye on, in my opinion. For a little recommended reading, over at Bloody Disgusting, Louise HC brings us six underrated horror movies inspired by cryptid creatures. This list includes Troll Hunter, Incident at Loch Ness, and The Mothman Prophecies. I don't know how, but that movie just fell right out of my brain. I'm really excited to go back and give that one a watch. I've been really into cryptids lately. I don't know where that's coming from, but I think between falling in love with Willow Creek last year and then with the new Creep Show, uh, I just, yeah, I just, I feel myself at the precipice of a, a major cryptid phase. All right, I think... 
I think that covers everything for tonight. So without further ado, it's time to dive into the movie. If you're new to this podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday elsewhere. And as usual, if you haven't seen In the Mouth of Madness from 1995, proceed with caution because I'm about to spoil the entire film for you. All right, let's talk about In the Mouth of Madness, directed by John Carpenter, written by Michael DeLuca. It stars Sam Neill, Julie Carmen, Jurgen Prochnow, and Charlton Heston, with appearances by Francis Bay, David Warner, and a tiny Hayden Christensen on a bicycle. It was released in the United States exactly 28 years ago today on February 3rd, 1995. In the Mouth of Madness is the third film in John Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, uh, which also includes The Thing and Prince of Darkness. He didn't set out to create a trilogy with these films, but he later dubbed them as such due to their common threads of nihilism, isolation, lost faith, and the reality-bending mind fuckery that is pure cosmic horror. There are also two episodes of Masters of Horror directed by Carpenter, uh, Pro-Life and Cigarette Burns, that are considered by fans to be extensions of this trilogy, which you'll get no argument from me on that front, especially with Cigarette Burns. If ever there were a reason to make this a quadrilogy, it would be to add cigarette burns to the mix where it belongs. Central themes of all the apocalypse films are naturally the end of the world and the hero or heroes fighting an enemy they know almost nothing about and cannot fully comprehend. I know the story of In the Mouth of Madness is a complicated one, even compared to the other films in the apocalypse trilogy. So I'm going to break it down according to my understanding of it, but bear in mind, this is just one person's interpretation of the story. In the Mouth of Madness starts appropriately at an asylum where John Trent, played by Sam Neill, is locked in a padded cell against his will. He's first visited by a mysterious figure who plagues him with visions. Then he's seen by psychiatrist Dr. Wren, played by David Warner, who tells him he's there to help get him out, but after he's had these visions, he says, no, he's decided he'd like to stay. He then relays to Dr. Wren the story of how he came to be there. You're waiting to hear about my them, aren't you? You know what? My them. Well, every paranoid schizophrenic has one, a them, a they, and it. And you want to hear about my them, don't you? John Trent was a jaded insurance investigator who fell down a rabbit hole from hell while trying to track down world-famous horror writer Sutter Kane, who mysteriously disappeared shortly before what was supposed to be the release of his latest book, entitled In the Mouth of Madness. Accompanied by Kane's editor Linda, Trent drove out to New Hampshire in search of Hobbs End, which is the town where Kane's books take place, which they believed to be fictional, but of course it wasn't, and when they arrived, they quickly realized the line between fiction and reality there was terrifyingly slim. Well, it's quick for Linda. It takes Trent a while, like the entire movie, to figure it out because he's a skeptical son of a bitch. Trent found Kane holed up in a massive church and learned that the writer had become a conduit for the old ones, weakened gods of madness and chaos, telling Kane what to write, and the more popular his books, the more people feared and believed what was written in them, the more violent and insane they would become, which fed into the strength of the old ones, restoring their power power to manipulate our world and eventually return to it. There were whisperings of this happening 
At the beginning of the story, we saw riots outside of bookstores by fans who were clamoring for Kane's next book. And there were bits and pieces of society crumbling, like in the periphery. But most of the madness and the power of the old gods was confined to Hobbes End. The children were the first to be infected by it. They spread it to their parents. And the old ones needed a vessel to carry Cain's last book out into the world to lay the final nail in humanity's coffin and kickstart that apocalypse. And as it turns out, Trent was that vessel. He was a character written by Kane to bring about Armageddon. When Dr. Wren visited Trent at the beginning of the film, the world was already ending. Uh, it just hadn't reached the asylum yet. But once we're all caught up, Trent is left alone in his cell, wakes up the next day to find the asylum in shambles, the door to his cell wide open. He stumbles out and winds up in the city at a movie theater watching the movie version of the book for which he was written, which is the movie we just watched. He sits there in the dark and just laughs his ass off. The story was originally supposed to end with the world being sucked into the pages of Kane's book, but that was too expensive, so they changed it. And I'm personally glad they did. The whole movie has a distinct Twilight Zone feel to it, and that ending really hammers that feeling home. I know a lot of people regard the 90s as marking the death of John Carpenter's work as a director. Everywhere you turn on the internet, you can find someone saying that the last good movie he ever made was They Live, tearing him apart for losing his edge and declaring the 90s the worst. And first of all, to those people, I would just like to say, calm down. I know that a lot of his films from the 90s left something to be desired, but not every movie can be The Thing or Halloween. He's not a failure for setting the bar that high. <laughs> and secondly, I think you're forgetting a couple of films like Body Bags and this one. <laughs> I personally believe In the Mouth of Madness to be among John Carpenter's best. One of the things that stands out to me most about it is that it does exactly what any good horror film should do. It scares the hell out of me. And of course, as is the case with most movies, a big part of that is the entire team behind it, which is also something I think people sometimes forget. You know, despite Michael DeLuca's inexperience as a screenwriter and the, uh, interesting script for Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, I feel like he wrote something really special here. And when you combine that with John Carpenter's expert eye and passion for the genre, as well as the incredible work of cinematographer Gary Kibb and editor Edward Warshilka, these guys all knew each other. Kibb was the DP for Prince of Darkness, They Live, Body Bags, and Warshilka also worked on a couple of those titles, as well as Big Trouble in Little China. So you've got a, a group of guys who work really well together who are all very good at what they do. There are a handful of scenes, especially during the first half of the film, atmospherically, even if I'm not emotionally invested in the moment, like if the movie is playing in the background and I'm washing the dishes or something, if I happen to catch a shot of them inside the car traveling down the road at night toward Hobbs End or that sequence of wake-up fake-outs Trent has on the couch after reading some of Kane's novels, if I catch those scenes, even out of the corner of my eye, I get that eerie feeling that makes me check behind me for a second and then you know, brush it off and pretend I wasn't scared at all because I'm, I'm tough. I picked up some of these Sutter Kane books, you know, I've been reading them. Well, it, pulp horror novels are all pretty familiar. They all seem to have the same plot, you know. Slimy things in the dark, people go mad, they turn into monsters, you know. But funny thing is that they're kind of better written than you expect. 
You've also got special effects by K&B and visual effects by ILM, two of horror's best acronyms, being ultra creative as always. Things get violent, things get gross, and most importantly, things get disorienting. There are times when the camera feels as though it's losing its mind right alongside Trent, and there are a lot of quick cuts and little fragments of unsettling images strewn together that act as little nightmares, getting more prevalent as things intensify around John. Basically, what I'm saying is the crew behind In the Mouth of Madness was just top-notch across the board. The back half of the movie was a little more ambitious and a little harder to pull off, I think, but I, I feel like they did an amazing job, especially when you consider how heavily inspired this film is by the works of H.P. Lovecraft. In an interview with John Carpenter back in 2007, he said he had always wanted to tackle Lovecraft, but commented on how difficult a task that is because so much of Lovecraft's horror is indescribable. That's what he wrote about. He wrote about unspeakable, unknowable things. So how do you, as a filmmaker, visualize that horror without ruining it? And it's true, the beauty of Lovecraft's writing, or one of the beauties of it, in my opinion, is that it's incredibly evocative. It leaves so much up to the imagination it's almost impossible to materialize it without diminishing its impact. So I think the key to bringing his horror to life is manifesting that terror through the people and places affected by it and focusing on our two great inconceivable enemies, which are death and the human mind. By those parameters, In the Mouth of Madness is a near-perfect example of how to tell a Lovecraftian story well. Where there should be an ancient elder god with an unpronounceable name and indescribable features, there's a cult leader-like horror writer with amazing hair and an exotic accent spouting off these dark and ancient wisdoms. And where we would see an interdimensional chasm devouring the world, there's a rip in the pages of an enormous book that contains the story of our protagonist's life. And the madness that spreads throughout Hobbs End as the Old One's power grows is indiscriminate. It affects everyone just a little bit differently, which fleshes it out, sometimes literally, and helps create the sense that it's absolutely everywhere. If In the Mouth of Madness did nothing else for me, it would convince me of John Carpenter's love for the works of, of Lovecraft. Well, that and that he clearly enjoyed poking fun at Stephen King. Sarah Kane happens to be this century's most widely read author. You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. There are a lot of nods to Stephen King in this film, so much so that whenever I hear or read someone refer to Christine as Carpenter's only Stephen King adaptation, it just, I know that it's technically accurate, but it just feels wrong. <laughs> Like, yes, In the Mouth of Madness is an original story, and it is more heavily inspired by Lovecraft than King, but Hobbes End feels a lot more like Castle Rock to me than Arkham, and Kane's popularity is obviously meant to mimic and outdo that of Stephen King's in the real world. Kane's book covers were also designed to look almost exactly like the covers of King's books that were coming out at that time. When Sam Neill was first given the script, he went back to John Carpenter and asked if it was supposed to be a comedy. He told him that it felt like a comedy to him. And I think there are a lot of grounds for that, but I think a big part of what makes it feel like a comedy at times are those playful jabs at Stephen King. Carpenter also makes fun of himself a little bit toward the beginning of the film. You know, at the asylum, they play We've Only Just Begun over a loudspeaker to calm down the inmates, and Trent is in his cell and he's just in agony, slumps down to the floor and says, Not the Carpenters too. 
I really enjoy Sam Neill's performance in this. I admittedly went back and forth a little bit about it when I first revisited the film this year. There was a part of me that really wanted to see him go just a little more balls out, figuratively speaking. I wanted it to be just a little more over the top once he really starts losing his mind. But after watching it a handful of times and and talking with some people about it and doing a little bit more research, I've really come to appreciate that he plays the crazy a little close to the chest. It's very consistent with his character. Trent's personality, his nature is that he's a skeptical son of a bitch. He's been hardened by his experiences as an insurance investigator, and he doesn't have the highest regard for humanity. As a couple of different characters point out to him throughout the film, he's always looking for the scam in every interaction he has with other people. He's always looking for their angle, the fraud. Like, how are they trying to fool me right now? And so he's adopted this attitude of, I can't be fooled. So it makes a lot of sense that no matter what he sees, no matter how fucking psychotic the world is around him, people being murdered, paintings moving on their own, uh, his road partner essentially turning into a squid monster, rifts between dimensions opening up right in front of him in the form of giant little Richard, like he just he can't allow himself to fully believe what he's seeing. And so it checks out that he never really fully surrenders himself to the madness, to the reality of it all, until the very end of the film, when he's sitting there in the theater watching the movie of his life. He's watching himself say over and over again, This is not real, this is not really happening. I can't be fooled. And and being reminded of this after everything he's been through. As the world's completely fallen apart, it just cracks him up, you know, how incredibly wrong he was. And I feel like Neil was the best choice to play that kind of crazy. And I think it's fantastic that when he first read the script, he he said that it felt like a comedy. I'm so glad Carpenter let him play it as though it were a comedy too. I think it just, it works so well. Also, can we take a second to appreciate how adorable it is to hear Sam Neill say totally Looney Tunes? Quiet, don't distribute it. Even if everything I've said is totally Looney Tunes, I know this book will drive people crazy. And then, of course, you have Julie Carmen as Linda Stiles. She has great chemistry with Sam Neill. And their characters, it's such an interesting dynamic because Sam Neill appears to be the voice of reason. You know, he's the one who, through the whole film, is saying, okay, come on, you're imagining things. We're not inside a Sutter Kane novel. <laughs> None of this is happening. It's, this is not reality. You would think that he is the voice of reason, but Linda Stiles has a much more open mind, and she foreshadows everything that happens to Trent when they're in the car on the way to Hobbs End. She basically spells out the entire plot of the movie, but he's too much of a cynic. He won't listen. He makes fun of her, you know, and, and still doesn't even fully believe what's happening when she loses her mind and turns into a monster. She's also an actress I'm not very familiar with outside of this film. I know she played Jerry Dandridge's sister in Fright Night Part 2, and she was was glamorous and lovely in that, but it was a lot of fun to see her in this, just kind of getting to do quite a bit more and and to go completely insane. And then Jurgen Prock now is the perfect Sutter Kane. Apparently, Rutger Hauer was also considered for the role at one point, and I think obviously he would have done an awesome job. But I personally feel Prock now was the best choice. He has this bourgeois eccentric air about him that makes him the perfect parody of a famous author while at the same time an effective and seductive monster. You can just see this guy living in some abandoned converted lighthouse somewhere. I don't know why I always, my mind always automatically goes to a lighthouse whenever I picture a reclusive writer. I blame J.D. Salinger. But 
you can see him there in the lighthouse, chain smoking these like obscure mini cigars, sitting alone in the dark with his typewriter, just churning out book after book because he just has so many stories trapped inside of him that need to get out. You know, it's easy to see that man beneath the surface of this conduit for the old ones. I can't take my eyes off of him. And I feel like, yeah, I would probably have read Sutter Kane's books. I would have lost my mind and helped contribute to the world ending, but you know, who knows? Maybe it would have been worth it. And the residents of Hobbs End are all so memorable and unsettling. You know, Francis Bay as Mrs. Pickman standing there behind the reception desk at the hotel with her, you know, naked and trembling husband handcuffed to her ankle. It's fucking... It's uh, it's disturbing. And Wilhelm von Homburg, who played Vigo the Carpathian in Ghostbusters 2, I know I know some people have have said that he feels out of place in this movie. And it's true that, you know, he's a very he cuts a very imposing figure. He has a very distinct accent that that feels a little out of place in this you know, small New England town. But I absolutely adore him in this. And the couple of scenes that he has with John Trent, where it's just the two of them, are are some of the more kind of emotionally unnerving for me. And I feel like his performance was really good. He he gets me right in the gut, especially with the last speech that he delivers. Like he sold me hard on his inner turmoil and just the, the grief that he felt at seeing you know, the, his whole town fall apart and realizing that he too was a character in a story. The thing I can't remember is what came first, us or the book. We are not living in a Sutter Kane story. This is not reality. <laughs> reality is not what it used to be. It just, uh, it just gets to me, man. It rattles me on such a deep level. To be fair, I know that part of the fear I experience when watching this is residual fear from childhood. I saw this for the first time in 1996, I want to say, so I would have been around 13. And that was right at the height of my discovery of Jean-Pierre Genet and Alex Proyas, who to this day are still two of my favorite directors. And I grew up on Lovecraft. I love Descent into Madness stories and The Inconceivable Enemy. And one lone intelligent individual working their ass off to solve a mystery the solution to which will change nothing at all about the outcome. <laughs> so this fell right in line with the kind of horror I was into and affected by at that age. But I don't think it's all born from nostalgia. I think that Carpenter and company delivered on their promise to take their audience into the mouth of madness. <laughs> I don't have anything negative to say about it. I mean, it's not without its flaws. You know, it doesn't have the most memorable score, for example, but I don't hate the score either. It's just, it's fine. The music was a collaborative effort between Carpenter and Jim Lang. Lang mapped out and composed about half of the movie ahead of time, and then John went in and added some improvisational touches, and it's it's fine. The opening theme is fabulous. <laughs> I know I'm in the minority here, but I love the opening theme. They wanted to open with a Metallica song, apparently, but they couldn't afford it, so Carpenter just wrote his own version of a Metallica-like song. And uh, I just love it. It's such an epic way to start the movie, especially with the visuals, the opening credit sequence. It's all so exciting. I get really pumped up, like, hell yeah, in the mouth of madness, let's, let's do this. Tonally, it doesn't quite match the rest of the movie, but they bookended it, so it works. In 
in the Mouth of Madness was shot in only 36 days in and around Toronto, Canada, uh, on a budget of somewhere in the neighborhood of around $8 million. It did turn a small profit, but it still bombed at the box office. And it was at the time the lowest grossing film of John Carpenter's career. I think it might even still be among the lowest grossing. It got mixed reviews from critics. They praised it for its technical aspects, but claimed that the story was too confusing, which I really do understand. Roger Ebert said it lacked wit and ambition, which is such bullshit. But as I've said in the past, if Roger Ebert didn't like a movie, that that's a huge point in its favor for me. Thankfully, over time, people have started to come around to it. It's gained a lot more respect um, in recent years. I remember... A while back, this actually might have been like 10 years ago now that I'm thinking about it, but there there was a blog run by a woman named Michelle called The Girl Who Loves Horror. Um, I wonder I wonder if it's still around actually. You know what? Please hold. It is. It's still floating about on the internet. She hasn't posted anything new since like 2016, which is unfortunate, but I just I had remembered her reviewing in the Mouth of Madness back in 2011. She reminded me back then of how much I loved it. Uh, She ended her review with, The movie never gets boring, and there's always something macabre or fantastical around the next bend that keeps your mind on its toes. Someone also commented on that entry by saying, In the Mouth of Madness is the best depiction of madness ever put on celluloid. And I have to say, while I don't think it is the best, it's really hard to narrow it down. There have been some amazing movies about battling the demons of the mind and exploring those descents into madness. You've got Eraserhead, Apocalypse Now, The Shining, obviously, Jacob's Ladder. One could argue to include Psycho on that list, uh, or Sisters, or one of my personal favorites, Talk Radio. Uh, So I think I think it's hard to narrow it down, but I definitely believe In the Mouth of Madness should be counted among them. A few fun facts about the film before we get Bruce in here for a newcomer's perspective. In addition to containing a map to Hobbs End, the cover art of Kane's books also illustrates all the events of the movie, not just what happens to Trent. We see Kane being visited by the old ones, uh, Mrs. Pickman murdering her husband, the kids being infected, it's, it's all there. And all of the book titles are referencing to varying degrees the stories of Lovecraft. Like you have the Hobbs End horror, which is the Dunwich Horror. And then, of course, the movie's title, In the Mouth of Madness, is strikingly similar to At the Mountains of Madness. The wall of monsters we see toward the end of the film was accomplished through a combination of animatronics, people in suits, and a literal wall of creatures that took over 30 people to operate. The wall was on wheels, and it had to be pushed with a crank. And when they were filming the scene, uh, the wall ran over Greg Nicotero. (laughs) He hurt his foot and he had to go to the hospital. This movie is one of my favorites in terms of kill counts, and I don't mean that Dead Meat did a kill count on it. I just mean the number of people killed in the film is really entertaining to me. Um, There were 15 people killed prior to the apocalypse, and Trent is the last one left alive at the end. So the official kill count for In the Mouth of Madness is 5,618,582,131, which was the world's population in 1994, minus 15. Okay, I feel like I could talk about this for another couple of hours, so I should probably just shut up. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I come back, we'll be talking with Bruce about his experience with the film, uh, which he just saw for the first time. Why are you doing this? Why are you trying to kill me? 
Hold on. I am so glad that you asked. I'm trying to kill you because I love your podcast, but it takes you weeks, sometimes months, to upload new content. Wait, really? You like the show? Yeah. But if you kill me, I won't be able to post anything at all. Don't do that. Just pledge to my Patreon. You have a Patreon? Yeah, I do. Well, I kind of sank all my money into this whole murder plan, so... Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Masks aren't cheap. The the lowest tier is only a dollar. Well, that's a pretty sweet deal. Right? And in the... And the more patrons I have, the more freedom I'll have to focus on creating new episodes of Final Girl Friday. Which means more regular uploads. Yes! See, you don't need to kill me. Just go to patreon.com slash finalgirlfriday. Okay, but we came all the way out here, and I have put a lot of work into this, so... I'm still gonna kill you. Uh, Are you freaking kidding me? I'll be sure to check out the Patreon once you're dead! That makes no sense! Bruce, welcome back to Final Girl Friday. Hi, thanks. It's nice to be here. Nice to have you back. How are you doing? I'm okay. Good. Great. Wonderful, actually. I just turned 42, so, you know, dealing with that. Happy The knowledge birthday. of everything, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. This year you yeah. you have become the answer to everything. How does it feel? I, um, great. I wish I knew the question. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a mood. Um, <laughs> uh, if you're new here, Bruce, uh, Bruce Barnett is his full name, and he is my childhood best friend. We have been friends since, I mean, I was barely out of single digits. Uh, he is a performance artist, uh, an actor, singer, dancer, Beverly Sutphin cosplayer, and uh, most recently he was... <laughs> I was like, who's that? <laughs> but now, uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> most recently, he was the voice of the killer in the Patreon ad that you guys have been hearing. So thank you for doing that. No, that was a ton of fun to do. It was, yeah, I had a, I had a blast. Excellent. Well, so the reason that I feel like I'm talking a lot here in the beginning, <laughs> but the reason that I wanted to talk with you specifically about In the Mouth of Madness was that, so this movie came out in 1995, which was around the time that you and I first met and became friends. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it was one of the first movies I ever bought with my own money. And I watched it like obsessively all through middle school. And it was very important to me, you know, growing up all through high school, it just had a huge influence on me as a fan of film. But that's not the case for you. You just saw this movie for the first time this weekend, correct? Yes. Um, I've known about the movie and I, I was aware that it existed and that the place that it has in the, in the genre, it's just not one that I ever took the time to sit down and watch. But I was, I was vaguely aware of the plot and, you know, happenings in the movie before I saw it. Right. What were your thoughts? Like, what was your initial reaction to In the Mouth of Madness? Well, so my initial reaction, and I'm talking like, started the movie and the first scene is playing. I was like, this is a very 90s movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's not that there were any special effects or anything in that first scene, but you could just, there's something, okay, so in the 90s, obviously, we didn't have high definition. So you can tell when you're watching a movie from before, whenever high definition filming started happening, you can almost tell what era it's from on the quality of the picture. So there's that, Mm -hmm. which I was really excited about because you're talking about nostalgia. So that's like a nostalgic thing for me. Um, But my my first actual like thought about this is what kind of movie this is because I didn't realize that it was John Carpenter that directed. Once I found that out, I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna have to watch this through this sort of a lens. I think I was about halfway through the movie right when it starts to get very strange. It seemed like it was 
John Carpenter Presents, an H.P. Lovecraft story as written by Stephen King. Yeah. <laughs> God, that's, that's, that's And so, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I started watching it like that, it made way more sense to me, like, why everything was happening, what was happening, and how it all was panning out. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that it was part of the Apocalypse trilogy. Yep, in the Apocalypse Yes, yeah, which now I've seen the first and the third, and I haven't seen the second, so I need to go watch The Prince of Darkness here. Oh, soon. yes, you really need to see Prince of Darkness. In my opinion, yeah. that was, I think, I think probably it's my favorite performance by Donald Pleasance. Okay. And I, yeah, I, I highly recommend, highly recommend so checking that one out. not Halloween 6 then? <laughs> I mean, he was amazing in <laughs> Halloween 6, let's not mince words, but yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting to me that you say when you found out that this was a John Carpenter film, it sort of changed the way you were watching it. I just, I thought it was, okay, so in the beginning, like, obviously it starts out, Sam Neill, awesome, by the way, I've always liked him. Yeah. He's in the asylum and he's like, oh my God, I didn't do it. Well, wee, wee. you know, like going crazy, but I'm not crazy, which is, you know, how it always happens. <laughs> the guy that plays the doctor, I've seen in a lot of things, but I can't. Yeah, David Warner. Play, thank you. I can't place him though. Like He I, was the, he was the theater professor. He was Sydney's theater professor in Scream 2. Okay. Well then, that just blows me out of the water. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. And so, you know, I mean, it starts out, I mean, obviously you're an insane asylum. That's not a normal life experience for all of us but it starts out really normal and then just the more you get into it and then you know like as that sequence is going on I think is where the credits told me that it was John Carpenter I was like oh, okay well I'm gonna have to pay attention to this movie I can't just <laughs> sideline watch it yeah. because you have to pay attention to a John Carpenter film because if you don't you're not gonna get it mm-hmm. and even though I paid attention to this movie I have to admit this is my final girl confession <laughs> I still didn't really get it. Like, I understand what happened and I understand it all. But, like, was he just a character in a book the whole time? Or was he real and this happened to him in our world where he ended up being... Like, was this stranger than fiction? In my opinion, yes. And, and I mean, I've, okay. I've read theories, uh, you know, that sort of look at it from both sides. But I, I personally subscribe to the theory that... Yes. When he's sitting in the theater and he starts like howling with laughter, he's like cracking up. That's him mm-hmm. finally fully appreciating that he was never real to begin with, that he was always a pawn and a character created by Kane in order to make this happen. That's my theory. I like that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, which also, which also, I'm sorry, brings to question, okay, so you know, there's in the, not the beginning, but sort of the beginning-ish, when he's walking by all of the, um, the Sutter Kane posters for, it's not In the Mouth of Madness, it's the book he wrote before that, and the Hobbs End. Yeah, the Hobbs, Hobbs End. End Horror, I think, is what that poster yeah. is. Yeah. So, it's one of those. But, you know, like, so he starts to pull the one poster out, but then doesn't. Mm-hmm. And then later in the movie, he does pull the poster, like, off the wall and it's his face yeah do you think his face would have been there yeah absolutely okay so he had he pulled that poster then he may have like circumvented the whole everything yeah well i mean i don't know necessarily if he could have avoided it because he tries to avoid it there toward the end and Mm -hmm. he still ends up delivering the manuscript to the publisher because it was like what that guy at the bar says to him at hobbs end about like he can't stop it because this is the way kane wrote them And so, you know, like the fact that he keeps ending up back at that alley, almost finding out about it, you know, much earlier, you have foreshadowing from Linda in the car when they're on the way to Hobbs and she basically tells him exactly what's happening. There are so many things, so many forces kind of trying in a way. I mean, I don't, I don't know if 
I would say trying, but there there are so many forces kind of dangling the truth <laughs> in front of Trent through the whole film, and he just never he just doesn't see it until the very end. And and so I do think that if he had fully peeled back the poster the very first time that he passed by, I don't know that it would have necessarily changed much, but it probably would have confused him a little further than he already was. <laughs> The other thing I noticed was when he goes to actually watch the movie, as he's going into the theater, you see the poster for In the Mouth of Madness. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it's down at the bottom, it says starring. It's, what is his name? John Trent, Linda Stiles. You know, I was like, oh my God, it says it, it says it. And I like beat Jay to a pulp and was like, look right there, you know. (laughs) So I was, I was a little excited about that part. Yeah, that is really neat, especially considering that, you know, this, the, the kind of, this was such a popular theme in movies at this time, you know, because you had Wes Craven's New Nightmare, you had Scream, you mm-hmm. had In the Mouth of Madness, this this very, it was sort of the dawn of a, a much more refined meta storytelling. And although that's not the central theme of In the Mouth of Madness, like it is the others that I just mentioned, it's still very much mm-hmm. there where you just sort of feel like, oh my God, it's a story within a story. You've just reminded me about how old some of my favorite movies are. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They're fucking old. We are fucking old, you know? Yeah. <laughs> But I did know, notice that, um, and Jay noticed too, both of us, because we're nerds as well as horror fans, that um, Hayden Christensen was the paper boy. Yeah, in his feature film debut, actually. I think it's funny that you and recognized I him. I wouldn't have noticed. Yeah. I didn't recognize him. I thought, I was like, that kid looks super familiar, but I don't know who it is. And then later when the credits rolled, I was like, oh, Hayden Christensen, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't recognize him either. And I mean, I barely know who he is, let's be honest. Um, He's... Anakin Skywalker. Let's. Just, I mean, I know, you know that. Okay. <laughs> I do know that. I do know that from the one time I watched the Star Wars prequels, but I'm not very <laughs> familiar with him as an actor. I knew that, you know, the paperboy or kid on bicycle. I knew that that was Hayden. Mm-hmm. But there are two kids on bicycles in this movie. There's the one toward the beginning when they're headed out to Hobbs End that scared the fuck out of me when I was a kid. Yeah, the one that's a kid and then is an old man, right? That one? Yeah, and yeah. then suddenly he's like 95. And then he's like on the ground cowering and he's got a kid's voice. And then he's like... That did freak me out. I, that was gross. That was Or not gross, but I mean just really, really scary. Oh, God. It was terrifying. And, and I remember having nightmares about... That was one of the scenes from the film that gave me nightmares when I was little. But then I, I, I completely forgot that there is another kid on a bicycle at the end of the film and that kid the paper boy is actually the one that's Hayden Christensen and I just did not know which one was which I just assumed that the kid from the beginning was him but yeah no you're it's the paper boy yes I know <laughs> see I, I recently turned 42 and I knew that <laughs> no that checks out that checks out. <laughs> well so speaking of the characters um who would you say was your favorite character in the film on first watch um the innkeeper the lady innkeeper. Oh, hell yeah, Mrs. Yeah. Pippin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> yeah. I loved her. I liked her a lot. But I always liked that weirdly off, like, she's the Lin Shea character, and I always loved mm-hmm. the Lin Shea character. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if they remade that today, no question, Lin Shea would play Mrs. Pickman. <laughs> yeah. It's, I just, because, you know, it's it's the weird, creepy old woman who might not be weird and creepy, but then later on in the movie, we find out that she's got her naked husband, what, handcuffed to her ankle, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, oh, okay, yeah, she is weird and creepy, but it's, I just, that whole scene where they first meet her was one of my favorite scenes of the movie, because at this point, Linda's figured out what's happening, mm-hmm. and is, like, the actress, God love her, she was really, really good, but she must have been directed by John Carpenter to overact this scene as much as she fucking possibly could. 
because the look on her face when she sees the painting and then when she looks at the innkeeper and then looks back at the painting like I just remember thinking she's I think she's trying to tell us that something's going on <laughs> you know like something is happening to this woman in her brain right now that is like uh, and then on top of that you meet the, the innkeeper character and the woman's like no she's chopping up her husband or Linda's like no she's chopping up her husband with, with an axe or something like that and then later on you find out that yeah that's actually what's happening yeah I also liked the group of kids oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's mommy's day which that that whole scene great scene made no sense to me at all like <laughs> none I was like why is this their group why is a group of kids why is why are they now a group of zombie kids why well, is it so, Mother's Day you know like <laughs> I can try to shed a little bit of light on the kids thing so if you look at the cover art first of all for uh, Kane's books the the tagline for one of the books suggests that the children uh, there's something wrong with the children at Hobbs End. And then the, the, the father of one of the kids is talking, he talks to him about how the, the madness that is spreading from the church, the first residents of Hobbs End affected by it were the children. And so that's why I think we keep kind of cutting back. We don't do it that often, but we do kind of keep cutting back to the kids as a sort of reminder of like, this is where it started. So okay. that's my that's my theory and you know with Linda being so tuned into what happens in these books I think that that was just one more encounter that she had that sort of amped up her paranoia and her you know con continued to convince her that this was really happening so I'm looking at pictures of the covers of the books now and it looks like the kids were from a book called The Feeding which has a yeah. very Cthulhu like tentacle monster at the top of it Mm -hmm. It says there's something very, very wrong with the children in this town. So that that's good to know. But the 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 Hobbs End horror, the tagline of that book, is my favorite, and it says that this book doesn't scare you to death. You're already dead. Yeah, I love that tagline <laughs> so much. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, I just like I said, there was there was a lot of stuff I really liked about the movie. I was left feeling a little um, used and confused at the end. So I'm gonna have to go back and watch it because mm -hmm. I know that on a second watch through, I'm gonna pick up on stuff that I didn't the first time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is definitely a movie that calls for rewatch, for sure. And I can also remember thinking that the whole thing was a dream. And I thought, oh, man, if they're, if that's what they're going to spend this like, it's not going to be very happy. And it, I'm glad they didn't. But when he's like, did I tell you my favorite color was blue? And then he woke up on the bus and everything was blue <laughs> and started screaming. I was like, okay, so it is a dream. It has to be a dream. Because if it's not a dream, none of this makes any fucking sense. <laughs> See, I interpret the increased use of the color blue, which I know that there are also a couple of theories about this as well. But when I when I watch the movie, I sort of respond to the blue as that is the influence, again, of the old gods and the, the power that they have over the world kind of spreading. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, it could also be the veil kind of lifting um, the closer he gets to the truth about what's happening. Well, I noticed that the, the people that you get a real good close up of who are in the midst of going crazy have those weird blue eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They do <laughs> where like their distorted irises are that that crazy pale blue color mm -hmm. i mean obviously it's john carpenter that has multiple layers of things that have to do with it yeah yeah this is definitely <clears throat> one of those films where i feel like almost nothing happens in it by accident mm -hmm. so when you said that you so you like it but you didn't feel like you fully grasped it the first time which i think is completely fair was there anything that you didn't like about it nothing specific that i can really think of i guess for me, like, the, the thing that I didn't like about it was that, first, I don't like a, here's what's happening, and then, like, 
17 and a half days ago. Like, I don't like that. <laughs> I, that I, I really just, I don't think it's lazy storytelling. I get why that, why people will do that. But then I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, he's gone. He has gone crazy. And that's what this movie's about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's, that was probably the whole point of that scene was to make us think, no, he's, he's batshit. Obviously, you know, um, I also didn't like the fact that he was able to color that whole room and all of his clothes and his face with, with one, one single crayon. Cl- crayon, one fucking crayon. <laughs> like, yes. That to me, I was like, nope, <laughs> you've pulled me out of it. Now I know this is a movie I'm not watching. Oh, anymore. my God. I'm so fucking glad you brought that up because that is my biggest pet peeve about this movie is like not only that, that he managed to color that significantly on his skin with it have you ever tried to write on skin with a crayon i I wanted to go yeah (laughs) i wanted to go out and get a black crayon and see like it can't be done i feel like you would burn yourself with like hot wax before you would yeah no it's it's fucking mark on your skin like that. that's fucking bullshit it's wizardry you can't write on skin that clearly with a crayon and to still have about half of that crayon left that crayon is a lie and I can't get behind it. <laughs> That's the thing you liked least about the movie. What was your favorite part about it? Um, oh. Like, or even, like, favorite scene or favorite line. Just, like... Well, I think... Because I have one. Yeah, I think, uh... Well, I think my favorite line in the film is probably... I realize that this is an incredibly cliche answer. Like, don't get me wrong. There are some really fantastic and funny lines in the film and just really, really impactful ones. But I think my favorite line in the film is just when the agent smashes the window out with the axe and says, do you read Sutter Kane? But my favorite scene is when they're riding in the car on their way to Hobbs End and Linda's asleep and Trent is clearly bored out of his mind. And so he pulls that <laughs> horn out of the glove compartment and, like, wakes her up. And she gets all pissed at him. <laughs> that I, It's such a silly little thing um not scary at all it's just it's just funny and uh i i absolutely love it i love sam neil in that moment and it, it's just a nice little cute human interaction between the two of them yeah so that would probably be my favorite scene not scare related <laughs> what about you so even though i complained about it earlier because i didn't know what was happening my f- the scene that i got the biggest kick out of in the movie is with all the little children mm-hmm and like they're standing there and you can because it's such a far away shot and again we're not in HD you can see that something is wrong with them but you can't really tell mm-hmm. and then it does the close up of the little girl and like her face is all like distorted and zombied and she's like it's mommy day <laughs> like, that was my favorite scene of the movie but my favorite line of the movie um, <clears throat> is actually when they're in the hotel room and I think that Linda is like having an episode mm-hmm. or like a seizure or it seems like Linda's finally losing it at the at this point and um, she says the line I'm losing me oh god I love that line yes and I remember yes. thinking did she say I'm losing it or I'm losing me and she said it again and it was obviously it was I'm losing me and I was like that's creepy ah oh, it really is it's so god it's so so well written man <laughs> because can you can you imagine because they say that if you think you're going crazy you're not because a crazy person would never think that mm-hmm. but can you imagine knowing that you are losing it that you are actively like going insane and having enough wherewithal to tell somebody else mm-hmm. you know like telling somebody this is happening and I can't stop it I need you to do something and then having that other person be like no not no, but you know, like, <laughs> what the <laughs> like, fuck what am the I fuck supposed to do? do? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and that you know, that's one of the things that I think makes Linda such a complicated and fascinating character because you know she, like Trent, being a pawn, being a character written specifically by Kane um, to lure Trent out there, you know, to make sure that Trent stays on the right path and makes it out to that church. You start to question whether or not she actually has agency. She really, Julie Corman really sells you on the descent into madness from Linda's mm-hmm. perspective. Like you said, with the, you know, just her, 
her over-the-top reaction to the town initially. Um, which, in a way, like, I like the overacting because I feel like how would you react if you just, you know, you were driving along the road and you stopped off at some, you know, B&B somewhere and you realized as you were walking around in it that you were looking at, like, the actual library from the first season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you were like, oh my god, this is a real place and then yeah. Giles walked around the corner? <laughs> like, you would freak the fuck out, you know? I would. But can I tell you what would have made it a little bit better? Hmm. <laughs> Having just been frightened to death by a 95-year-old, 6-year-old riding on a bike that I hit with a car... <laughs> Driving off into complete pitch darkness and then somehow coming through the, the covered bridge from Beetlejuice, I think would have made it way better. That is such a good point, though, because she doesn't freak out about any of that nearly as no. much as she does the, the, the hotel. So this is normal. I must have just been in this bridge for hours. Yeah, she's just like, you drive. And that's like her whole reaction to that. God, that was so scary, though. That mm-hmm. scene is so beautifully edited. And the effects, the effects were just so, just so frightening and disorienting. And that's one of the many things that I love about this movie is that the movie itself is off its fucking block. Like it is, the movie itself is crazy. And when you have scenes like that where she's driving through the covered bridge, the camera is going nuts, the visual effects are going nuts. The only thing not going nuts in that scene is Linda, which is really yeah. strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so keeping with the, you know, the scenes that we love, was was the scene with the kids outside of the church, was that also like the scariest scene in the movie to you? See, because I wish that I had seen this when I was younger because I know that it would have been intensely more frightening to me. Yeah. Because the movie to me didn't really seem that scary. This was more of a psychological thing. And the psychological horror doesn't really tend to scare me. Mm-hmm. But... The thing that, I guess the thing that made me, like, cringe the most, the thing that made me want to, like, uh, into the back of my chair, it it goes along with your favorite line. It's when the guy is calmly walking across the street and everybody in the street is freaking out. Mm -hmm. And Trent and the other guy are just like, so anyway, I had this great cup of coffee the other day. She's wonderful. (laughs) And he's, like, stalking up on them. Like, that. I I thought that the axe was going to go into the other guy's face, and so I was waiting for that to happen. So I guess that would have been the one that, like, kind of scared me the most, just because I was waiting for something that didn't happen. Right, right. Does that make sense? Because, like, the whole movie, like, it wasn't wasn't over-the-top gore factor scary. Like, really hardly any of the movie was. Mm -hmm. So I think just the anticipation and then the fact that it didn't happen, that kind of left me like, uh, you know, well, what's going to happen now? Right, right. See, God, that's that's why I wanted to talk to you about this. I find that so interesting because... Like, every other frame of this movie scares me. I had nightmares last week. Uh, I fell asleep watching this, I think, for, like, the third time uh, since, you know, when, since revisiting it. Um, fell asleep, and I had I had nightmares. And when I woke up, I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. I just I just had bad dreams as a result of watching this movie, you know, for the first time in, in many, many years. This is a movie that gave me nightmares when I was a kid. I love that it's still able to scare me. If I'm watching it alone at night, I will get creeped out by certain things, like, like the lone hand knocking on the asylum window, just the, the image of that and the timing of it all uh, and how naked that scene feels otherwise like that really scares me the, when she gets out of the car later and it's that contortionist thing where she's like walking on her hands and legs upside down she's doing basically like the Reagan from the Exorcist thing but her head is turned all the way around like that mm-hmm. also scares me even though the effect doesn't quite land as hard now in 2023 as it did back in 95 it's still really unsettling there's just a lot about this movie that scares me and so it's just interesting to me that like yeah a lot of that stuff is probably residual but i like that that scene from the beginning was still able to kind of unnerve you you know (laughs) well because that's what that's to me that's 
of everything that happened in the movie, <clears throat> that's the most real. Mm-hmm. And it's usually the realism of the stuff like that that can scare me, which is why jump scares from movies like Scream still scare me. Because yeah. somebody could just jump out from the closet that you're getting ready to open up. Somebody could walk across the street with an axe and you're so intent on what you're doing that you don't notice it happening. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is a movie that you will? I know you said you 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 feel like you should, but do you think this is a movie you will go back and watch? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Mostly because now that I know what's going on, I'll know that I need to look for a thousand smaller things. Right. I didn't realize the descent that this movie was going to take. And I should have because the title is Into the Fucking Mouth of Madness. And so, like, (laughs) you know, from the beginning, they were telling me, like, this movie's crazy. And I just didn't listen. I want to thank Bruce for hanging out and sharing his first impressions of In the Mouth of Madness. Also, happy belated birthday. And to anyone out there listening, what are your thoughts on In the Mouth of Madness? Is this a movie you grew up on like me, or did you discover it later in life? Do you you think it's terrifying, or do you find it confusing? If you have any thoughts at all you would like to share, feel free to reach out to me. You can find me on the Slasher app. My username is Final Girl Friday, Instagram at Molly Oblivion, or if you prefer old-school correspondence, you can email me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. Before we wrap up tonight, it's time for this week's Worst Case Scenario. Give me a worst case scenario and make it grim. So this week's going to be a little different. Usually with worst case scenario, I pose a hypothetical question relevant to the movie we're talking about and read my favorite responses. But after watching In the Mouth of Madness a handful of times, talking with people about it, doing some research, it was really starting to weigh on me how long it's been since I read a really good scary story. So I thought I would just go back to basics and ask you guys, what's the scariest book you've ever read? And we got a lot of really great recommendations. If I don't read your recommendation today, I'm so sorry. I don't want to overwhelm anyone because there were just so many good ones and I wanted to kind of look into them, you know, before I pass them along. Another Graveyard Ghost recommends The Troop by Nick Cutter, which is apparently a pen name of Craig Davidson. He said it was the last book that creeped me out and those creeps didn't all come from the main antagonist. According to Goodreads, the synopsis of The Troop is once a year, Scoutmaster Tim Riggs leads a group of boys into the Canadian wilderness for a three-day camping trip, a tradition as comforting and reliable as a good ghost story and a roaring bonfire. But when an unexpected intruder stumbles upon their campsite, Tim and the boys are exposed to something far more frightening than any tale of terror. It is a harrowing struggle for survival that will pit the troop against the elements, the infected, and one another. The top-rated review of the book on Goodreads is from a user named Cat, and it reads simply, fuck this book. The troop was published in 2014, and in 2015, it won the inaugural James Herbert Award for horror writing. And the audiobook is narrated by Corey Brill, who played Pete for about five episodes of The Walking Dead. Ben Tramer 78 says Pen Pal by Dathan Auerbach. I think this one looks fascinating. Um, according to Goodreads, in Pen Pal, a man investigates the seemingly unrelated, bizarre, tragic, and horrific occurrences of his childhood 
in an attempt to finally understand them. Beginning with only fragments of his earliest years, you'll follow the narrator as he discovers that these strange and horrible events are actually part of a single terrifying story that has shaped the entirety of his life and the lives of those around him. Penpal was published in 2012, but it started as a series of posts on a horror forum. So it's written in a way that can be a little off-putting to some people, but reading the synopsis, I'm reminded of a book I read called Griffin and Sabine. It wasn't a horror story, really, although it did have its moments. But it presented as a collection of letters, postcards, photographs. It was interactive. You could remove the letters from the envelopes, open them up, and it depicted this strange relationship between two people who met through the mail. I feel like if you're going to tell any kind of a pen pal story, why not use like the epistolary method? And it sounds to me like that's what pen pal does. Shamadari Dabi 85 recommends Song of Kali by Dan Simmons. The synopsis is Calcutta. A monstrous city of immense slums, disease, and misery is clasped in the fetid embrace of an ancient cult. At its decaying core is the goddess Kali, the dark mother of pain, forearmed and eternal, her song the sound of death and destruction. Robert Luke Luxac? Lujac? Robert has been hired by Harper's to find a noted Indian poet who has reappeared under strange circumstances years after he was thought dead. This actually ties in pretty well within the mouth of madness. Nothing is simple in Calcutta, and Robert's routine assignment turns into a nightmare when he learns that the poet is rumored to have been brought back to life in a bloody and grisly ceremony of human sacrifice. Um, Song of Kali was published in 1985, and it won the World Fantasy Award the following year. Two Guys on Friday recommend Ghoul by Michael Slade. I had a difficult time finding, like, a solid official synopsis for this book that made any sense to me <laughs> as a newcomer, but from a review on Goodreads. First published in 1987, during the great boom of serial killer novels ushered in by Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, Ghoul differentiates itself by having been written by diehard horror fans who just happen to be Canadian lawyers specializing in criminal insanity cases, no less. Can someone please explain to me why Canada is so fucking good at horror stories? Is it really just that the nicest people are often the best at digging into, like, the deepest darkness? What the hell is it? What is it about Canada? <clears throat> Slade's passion for horror and understanding of the inner workings of the insane brings a unique formula to the proceedings that tickles the horror geek in me like few other writers are capable. The novel has elements of both police procedural and murder mystery and is chock full of horror movie references and ever-escalating terrors. Ghoul is the second book in Slade's Special X series, which contains at least 14 books that I can find. Possibly more. I don't know how the hell I've never heard of these. Kitty of That Horror Witch recommends the Goosebumps book where the kids get trapped in the mirror. My first thought when I read that was, uh, let's get invisible. But I couldn't actually remember someone getting trapped in a mirror in that book. I just remembered the cover art being the kid at the mirror. And I dug around a little bit, and I think the book she's thinking of is Ghost in the Mirror from the Goosebumps 2000 series. The synopsis is, there's something eerie about Jason's new mirror. It's almost as if a force were pulling him into his own reflection and into a cold, dark world he may never leave again. I haven't read this one. Unfortunately, the Goosebumps 2000 series was just slightly after my time. I was always a huge fan of Piano Lessons Can Be Murder. That was my favorite Goosebumps book. And I remember a few years later when I graduated to the young adult horror of, like, well, R.L. Stein's Fear Street series, but also Christopher Pike and Lois Duncan. Lois Duncan had a book called Down a Dark Hall, and the cover art for that one reminded me of the art for Piano Lessons Can Be Murder, so that was the first Lois Duncan book I read. 
Uh, and it scared the shit out of me. But uh, but yeah, Ghost in the Mirror, it was the 25th and last book in the 2000 series and the only one to be published in the year 2000. Skid Blodnir recommended the complete translation of the Malleus Maleficarum, or The Hammer of Witches, the two-volume edition by Christopher S. McKay. I had been vaguely aware of this book, you know, just by title, references in music that I've listened to, you know, that sort of thing. But I... <laughs> This is the first time I've ever, like, delved into it. And I'll tell you something, <laughs> I completely lost time. It was like I blacked out. The Malleus Maleficarum, which I don't speak Latin, so forgive me if I just butchered that, usually translated as the Hammer of Witches, is best known as the Treatise on Witchcraft. It was written by the German Catholic clergyman Heinrich Kramer and first published in the German city of Speyer in 1486. As part of his recommendation, Skid says, The horror of the original book and the wake that it left jaw-dropping. Definitely not the lightest of reads, but sure to be the most fascinating. We also had some classic recommendations. Gory Rory, Deuce, and Sturmdrang all said either The Exorcist or Legion. Gory Rory specifically said Legion, which he also reminded me that I still need to finish reading it. And you're right. You're so right. And that's why we're doing this today, to light a fire under me to read more, damn it. Sturmdrang also said Gerald's Game, which is definitely one of my personal favorites from Stephen King, along with Salem's Lot, which was recommended by Ms. Barella. And Advanced Noob, who is Bruce, had several King recommendations, books five and six of the Dark Tower series and It, which, yeah, I, I talked about this way, way back. It was the very first thing I ever talked about on the show, actually, that It was the book that made me realize what a pretentious asshat I had been about Stephen King for such a long time. I avoided him like the plague because he was so popular. And uh, when I finally sat down and read It... I realized that he is very popular for a reason. Thanks so much to all of you who recommended some of your favorite scary books. I'm going to do everything I can to read most of these. I don't know if I'll get through the Malleus Maleficarum, but I want to, and I hope that that counts. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Final Girl Friday is hosted by, you know, me, Molly Oblivion, edited by Jonathan Bradley, and scored by Gory Rory. Huge thanks to my creepy janitors over at Patreon, Chad, Deuce, and welcome back to the Patreon, Chris. It's so nice to see you back there. I'll be back in two weeks on the 17th, talking with... Gory Rory, for the first time ever here on Final Girl Friday, Gory Rory will be joining me to talk about Dead and Buried from 1981. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sane. Remember, reality is just what we tell each other it is. And as usual, creep it real. <laughs> <laughs>